The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, good morning. We are uh, glad you're here this morning with us today at Temple Bible Church. I'm Tim Cartwright. I'm one of the pastors here at Junior High and Local Outreach, and I'm glad to be up here. Normally, uh, when Gary introduces me, he says some corny joke about the Eagles or something. Um, but they're actually playing right now in England, so nobody yell at the score to me or anything. I think they were winning, but who cares right now? All right, so let's look at John chapter 19. John chapter 19 is what we're looking at this morning. We're talking about the crucifixion. Last week, uh, Gary gave us a great insight into the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And I love how he titled it. Uh, he called it not uh, Jesus before Pilate, but Pilate before Jesus. I think that was a powerful statement to show us that it wasn't any man that was going to run Jesus down. It wasn't any man or woman that was going to take his life, that he was going to willingly give it. So he gave us some clarification and referred to Pilate as being convicted, challenged, yet unchanged. But my prayer today is that after looking at the details of the crucifixion, you'll be convicted, challenged, and forever changed. Let's pray together. Dear God, as we come before you, we pause. We pause uh, from the busyness of life. Life gets so crazy and we're just running around so quickly and we really rarely have time to consider what you've done for us. So I pray that today will be a day that we will be changed as a result of looking, what, looking at what you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So we live in a culture today that bases a lot of things on feeling. A lot of decisions are made on feelings, emotional situations, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or even whether to get married or not, or lots of different things are based on feeling. And unfortunately, when we live based on feelings, our life becomes a roller coaster. Some have, you know, roller coasters like you would see at Six Flags. Some have like the kiddie version, but we all have roller coasters when we live by feelings. And the reality is that God doesn't want us to live according to feelings. He's given us his word to show us that that's not what life's about. Because if we lived according to our feelings, then we would be rejecting God multiple times a day. But I want to encourage you with some facts as we begin our time together to strengthen your faith. Now, there are 332 prophecies written about Jesus in the Old Testament, and around 60 specific prophecies about Jesus' death. And the odds of anyone fulfilling these prophecies, the odds are astronomical, of anyone fulfilling even a few of these prophecies. You think of it this way, uh, some of you may have paid attention to the mega millions last week. You don't have to raise your hand, but some of you even bought a ticket or two. They're looking down. Some of you may have. <clears throat> and the jackpot was $1.6 billion. <clears throat> the odds of you winning that were 1 in 302 million. The odds of you hitting that jackpot. But when it comes to the odds of fulfilling prophecy, those odds look really good. 
Because the odds of fulfilling prophecy are crazy. The odds of Jesus fulfilling only eight of the 60 prophecies about his death are one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one in 100 quadrillion. I didn't know that was a number. Maybe it's made up. I have no idea. But it's based on a detailed study done by a mathematician named Dr. Peter Stoner. Stoner goes on to say, that many silver dollars, and I have a little plate, it's not communion, but it's just a plate of just fake little silver dollars. But it's that many silver dollars, 100 quadrillion. I want you to imagine that spread across the state of Texas, two feet deep. So you got silver dollars all across the state of Texas, two feet deep, and I bring someone up on this stage and I say, all right, I got a blindfold. I'm going to blindfold you. I'm going to help you down these stairs. I'm going to lead you out the door. I'm going to let you walk anywhere you want in the state of Texas. You can only stop one time. And you are looking for a silver dollar, only one, that I hid in two feet deep all over the state of Texas. And you have to stop once and pick that one up with the X on it. That's the odds of somebody fulfilling only eight of these prophecies. If you stretch it out to 60, the 60 specific prophecies about Jesus, it actually goes to one uh, in 10 with 157 zeros after it. I couldn't fit them all on the screen. That's just 100 quadrillion. To have somebody fulfill these 60 prophecies about Jesus, but we can have confidence in knowing these prophecies were written and he fulfilled them. And in our passage that we're in today, he fulfilled eight of them. Specifically in John 19, 17 to 37. So let's look at that today and read it together. So they took Jesus... And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. For my clothes, uh, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not, another, uh, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So we think about this passage. We think about that prophecy, and it's important to note that in all other religions out there today, every other religion, in this world today and all the supposed prophecies about other religions and religious leaders, only one has come about and come true, which was Muhammad going back to Mecca. One. There's 332 about Jesus that he fulfilled in Scripture. You can look for it yourself and there's actually some in your bulletin you can check out. So at the time of Jesus' arrest, the Jews, they still relied on stoning as a form of capital punishment. The Jews didn't have crucifixion in their uh, forms of capital, capital punishment. They used stoning. But because the Romans were occupying their uh, city, they decided, all right, well, they didn't really decide. They had to submit to that authority. And the Romans were the ones that were known to have perfected crucifixion. You see, you can do a historical study and see that crucifixion goes back into the Old Testament. The Medes and the Persians and the Egyptians, they had forms of crucifixion. But the Romans were known to have taken it to a couple more levels up and actually perfected that form to bring out the most pain and the most devastation on the person that was being crucified. So here's Jesus facing this cross, facing this crucifixion. So when we look at this passage in detail, it's important for us to kind of just, we're going to take it as it flows uh, through 17 to 37. And the first section we can look at, we can call the the, the cross, the crowd, and the craziness of the crucifixion. Let's consider the cross. When we think about the cross and some of these other, other elements, it's important for us to notice, and maybe you already did in the reading of the scripture, that This passage is filled with lots of Old Testament themes, lots of Old Testament references, lots of Old Testament uh, figures that you can kind of see as John writes this passage. First, the cross, Jesus carrying the cross, that wooden cross on his back, brings me back to the story of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham told Isaac, gather a bunch of sticks, put them on your shoulder and carry them up this mountain, little did Isaac know it was for the sacrifice of him. And as he carried that wood on his shoulder, he carried it to his imminent death. In the same way, Jesus carries the wood on his shoulder outside the city to his death as well. Fortunately for Isaac, there was a ransom, something that was paid on his behalf in the bushes on his behalf. But Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, 
So that goes back to Deuteronomy 21, 23 that says, anybody that hangs on a tree is cursed. And what we see here in Galatians, we see Paul saying, look, Jesus took that curse on you. He took that curse of hanging on a tree on your behalf. And so we see the cross, but we also look at the crowd. If we picture going outside the city, you see there's a crowd coming in and out because of Passover. Lots of people coming in, multitudes of people that wouldn't normally be there coming in and out on this road. In Hebrews 13, 12 and 13, the, the author says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So he, here he is, the Lamb of God being sacrificed outside the city. And you see in this passage also it's called the place of the skull. And we have a picture of this. Uh, this is an older version of this picture where you see, if you look at the top right, a picture of a skull. Now, this isn't a made-up picture. This is you know, very literal. And when they wrote back then, they wrote literally and they said, here it is. This is near where he was crucified, the place of the skull, otherwise known as Golgotha. A more recent picture of those who went to Israel recently, Pastor Danny showed me a picture, and the nose has since fallen off of that skull, but you can still see the eyes on the rock face there. And this is the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified. But it's a main thoroughfare in and out of the city. So it's not like some have said, oh, Jesus died in obscurity. Some have said there wasn't that big of a crowd. It wasn't that big of a deal. But the reality is people were coming in and out. Even if they weren't necessarily there for the crucifixion, they were seeing it because it was right along the road. And so you see he was crucified at the place of the skull. And it's interesting that they would undoubtedly see the sign that was written above his head that Pilate put there. Because it was written in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, nobody could miss it. No matter who you were, you were going to be able to understand this sign that said, here he is, Jesus, King of the Jews. And of course, you had the religious leaders from their manipulation with Pilate, trying to even manipulate him here in this sign, saying, no, please just say he was, uh, said he was king of the Jews. And we see Pilate's stirring of his heart, as Pastor Gary mentioned last week, that no, what I've written, I've written. You're not going to make me do this. I still have some ownership and control here, and I'm going to keep it as it is. So a sign, it just rests above Jesus' head that says, king of the Jews. It says Jesus is king, proclaiming who he claimed to be. But in addition to the crowd, it was also just crazy around there. And you can see that <clears throat> in the gambling that was taking place at the foot of the cross. Now, in looking at this this week, I realized in the study that this wasn't uncommon. This isn't like the only thing recorded in scripture or even in history that people gambled <clears throat> at the foot of the cross for the clothing. But the reality is they did this for Jesus. Four soldiers got four parts of his clothing. But then you have this one uh, seamless piece of clothing that they gambled for. <clears throat> so it's important for us to recognize that as well. The reality is this. A lot of the de depictions you see of the cross today are pretty phony. First of all, Jesus did not have light skin. And for us that created that, 
whole idea that he looks like me is not correct. He had darker skin. And that should be reflected in the kingdom of God that this is not a, a white Jesus, but this is a Jesus for all. But you also help us, uh, it helps us understand when we look at the cross that also the depictions we get are, are kind of, they're, they're made a little softer. He has clothing on. But the reality of the cross of Christ, contrary to the pictures you've seen growing up, is he was naked. He was on that cross in humility. He was on that cross being shamed as a naked man, the naked son of God, being crucified. This leads us to understand that the nakedness of our Savior experience was horrific, but even in his utterly shameful deed, God's prophetic word was fulfilled. He bore the curse of nakedness to deliver us from it. Goes back to all the way to the garden, Adam and Eve, who experienced sin for the first time and all of a sudden realized they were naked. They were ashamed and they had no hope. But Jesus took that nakedness on himself and the curse of that nakedness on himself to deliver us. So I don't know about you, but I grew up going to church. My dad's a pastor, been a pastor for 41 years now. And so I've seen a lot of remakes of the cross. I've seen the UMHB version. I've seen lots of other versions every spring. <clears throat> so when you see those things, you see certain things that are brought out, brought out by, by the depiction in that remake. You see the cross. You see the crown of thorns. You see maybe somewhat of a torn up back. You see fake blood. And so all these things are physical demonstrations of what Jesus went through. And the reality is, as a visual person, that's where I go. And even when I've taught it with my students, I've taught it really focusing on the physical pain because obviously it was immense. Unrecognizable was his figure. His back was just torn open, these thorns this big in his head beaten, spit on. So the physical pain is there, and for us, it's easier for us to realize, but what goes far beyond the physical pain of the cross was the rejection by his Father. And I know for me, it's difficult to imagine. So as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, I remember specifically this occurrence that took place with my dad. And I'm not like some of you that remember like really great details. Like I, I have a tough time remembering stuff. But this was like right in front of my brain when I was thinking of this. And I could even smell the mulch in the playground. So I don't know about you, but uh, <clears throat> I grew up going to the park. My dad would take us to the park with my brother and my sisters. And I always thought it was just, no, my dad wanted to hang out with me. But I think uh, nowadays that I have kids, it was like my mom was like, you better get them out of here now. <clears throat> something bad is about to happen. I've had them all day. Get them out. So, especially little Timmy, because he was up to no good. So, here I go to the park. I'm with my dad, with my brother, with some of my buddies that came, and I'm at the park. We're swinging. We're goofing off, climbing on stuff, and there's these guys there that were doing stuff that, that wasn't right, apparently. 
We heard some cursing and stuff like that, but they were doing some things that were inappropriate. I don't remember all of that, but I do remember it was bad enough that my dad went up to him and said, hey guys, can you get lost? You know, just move it along, you know, do whatever you're going to do somewhere else. And I remember these, these uh, guys basically telling my dad, no, we're not going anywhere. And my dad was not a violent man. I never saw him do anything that was like, oh wow, you're out of control. But at this moment, when they'd refused to clean it up or to get lost, he grabbed the dude, the one dude, I guess the ringleader, by the hair and by the back of the shirt and threw him out of the playground, tossed him. And like today, he'd probably get arrested, but back then, I guess it's all right. These guys, well, they're not going to go tell, like if this old man just threw me out of the playground, but... So they run off, you know, and they run off up this hill and, and then they, of course, start yelling from a distance like I used to do to my brother, you know, yell at him from there because he can't get me. But I still remember that, that protection I felt, that, that safety I felt, that, that someone was, was standing up for me, that someone was in my place. And I couldn't help but think about this relationship between Jesus and God and how instantly Jesus felt that rejection. Boom, right on the spot. He's on the cross and, and, and they had such great communion, far greater communion than you could ever have with a, a father, son, physically, humanly speaking. And here he is, Jesus, God's son, and his, his dad is not there. His father is gone. And I thought about maybe some of you maybe that have experienced that pain where like instantly a relationship is severed And you feel the weight of that pain. And even today you sit there in that pain. And maybe that might help you, at least on a small scale, picture what Jesus went through. That immediately that relationship was gone and severed. And it's such a powerful picture we get. Far beyond the physical torment and pain Jesus went through. But not only that, we also see in this scene, we see that Jesus' friends and family are there. In verses 25 to 27, we see friends mentioned, a woman mentioned at the cross, one in particular, Mary Magdalene, had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. As a result, she was known as a devout follower of him. It's also important to note that of the 11 disciples left after Judas, how many were still there? There was one, the guy writing this book. But it's interesting that Jesus, uh, that God inspired through the Holy Spirit, John to write that four women were there. All these men had abandoned Jesus and here's four women sticking it out. What great faith and courage they had. And it's important for us to notice even this day and time we live in that due to unfortunate oppression and subjugation of women over the years, some people who claim to know Jesus and are leaders in the church had given Christianity a bad name. However, through scripture, we can find the inclusion, the crucial roles, and the impact of women in the spread of the gospel and foundation of the church to this very day. I've heard people said, uh, I've heard people say that Christianity demeans women and Christianity kind of puts them down here and the man up here, but I don't think they've read the Bible that I've read. I don't think they know the Jesus that I know because these women had crucial roles in his ministry. And even to the point that one man is mentioned, one man is left, and four women are still sitting at the foot of that cross. 
It's a powerful thing that he mentions here, and it's, it's good for us not to miss it. But then we look at Peter. Look at the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Where's Peter at? Well, he's fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. You're going to deny me three times. You're gone. You think about James and John. Think about their relationship. If you look at, uh, if you jump ahead of Mark 10, verse 35, you actually see a situation where James and John not only go to Jesus, but they recruit mommy to help them out and say, hey, I want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. I want to sit there and be in the special place next to you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? You have no idea what you're asking. And you know what he's referencing? What we're talking about today. What did John see on Jesus' right hand and left hand? Thieves dying on the cross. And Jesus says to them, you're not ready. Are you able to drink this cup that I'm about to drink? And the next time they profess commitment and love to Jesus, they're going to know what it's going to cost. They're going to know. Just like I, I, last time I had a chance to speak up here on this stage, we talked about persecution. We talked about when you're called by God to live for him and you're called by God uh, to, to become a Christian and know Jesus, you are signing up for a difficult road. And James and John saw that firsthand, and John specifically at the foot of the cross. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Death, persecution, pain, trouble. It's not an easy road. And for those that paint it to be easy, that's a false gospel. So when the tough times come, what do we do? Do we run away or do we run to the cross, the example of the cross? We also see his family mentioned here. The kindness of Jesus' words to his mother are beautiful here in this passage. If you look where Jesus is speaking to Mary, in verse uh, 26, Woman, behold your son. Then he has said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her to his own home. It's, it's a powerful thing. If you go back to uh, Jesus when he did his first miracle, turn water into wine. What does, Je- what does Mary do? She comes to him and is like, I got an awesome son, right? Hook us up, Jesus, right? That's a little paraphrase, but hook us up. We're out of wine. We're out of the-. And, and Jesus goes and gives him the good stuff, right? But Jesus addresses her in an interesting way there. He calls her woman. He doesn't call her mother. And in the same way, he addresses her from the cross, showing a different relationship. He's identifying a different relationship. Not only was it the pain of seeing her son on the cross, but it's further than that and deeper than that, that she saw the pain of her Savior on the cross. But in this sweet moment where he talks to his mom, he says, uh, behold your son. And then it's John, the author. Hey, take care of her. And from that day on, he took her into his own home. What a sweet moment that was. But here they are by the cross, Mary and John. But you know what? They still weren't convinced of the resurrection. We'll see in a few weeks what happens later. They're still surprised that he showed up. It's kind of interesting. They were there, but not quite there. In his book, Intimate Moments with the Savior, Ken Geyer writes concerning Mary at the foot of the cross, 
But love never looks like this. Pools of blood beating the dirt beneath the cross. A heavy spike through the feet. Ribs protruding against the skin. Open wounds bothered by flies. Eyes swollen with fever. Hair matted from this morning's thorns. Hands raised to God on splintered wood. A slumped torso dangling from impaled wrists like some grotesque pendant. It is more than a mother can bear, but somehow she does, largely because of the man standing beside her, steadying her, John, the disciple of Jesus, loves. It's also important for us not only to see family and friends, though, to also see Jesus' statements from the cross in verse 28 to 30. First powerful statement he makes is, I thirst, in verse 28. This statement fulfilled prophecy, but I, I think it went a little further than that. We see that Jesus says that no physical destruction can be compared with the spiritual destruction of hell, the separation from God, the loss of the presence of God. But that's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. So this wasn't just some thirst, meaning I just ran a marathon and I need some water. My mouth is dry. My tongue is sticking to my mouth, as some of the prophecy says. No, this is more than that. This thirst that is taking place is a thirst for his father, a thirst of the relationship between him and his father that was severed. It goes back to the book of Psalms where where David says, uh, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, O God. And here's Jesus longing for his father, longing for that relationship, and it's severed. It's gone. This thirsting is not just physical. This thirsting is spiritual. And it's a thirsting that we all have and can only be satisfied by Jesus. But not only did he thirst, he also says it is finished in verse 30. Three of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. Luke 23, verse 44 and 45 says, It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So here we are in the middle of the afternoon and everything goes dark. Everything is darkness all around you and it kind of goes back again to an Old Testament reference back when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And the Israelites are slaves and and God performs these ten plagues to get them released from Pharaoh's grip. And the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. And I don't know about you, but I've never been too many places growing up because I grew up in Philadelphia that I actually could feel darkness. It was like always some kind of light around. And I, I knew there were stars out there, but I had to drive a little ways to see them. But some of you may have experienced, man, this heavy darkness. And it's darkness like you can feel. And that's what came over everyone at that moment where uh, even the darkness trembled as we heard in that song. And here it is, this heavy weight of darkness that could be felt. And when one is enlightened by the Spirit to trust in Jesus, there is a darkness that is recognized and felt that is lifted from the desperate sinner. We all are in a state of darkness without Jesus and it can be felt sometimes and the point is that we have a Savior that can redeem us from that darkness and bring us into the light. 
We see Jesus as the ransom. His cry of it is finished has connotations of the debt is paid. We no longer own a debt, owe a debt. This day was the day of preparation. It was leading up to the Sabbath. It's the day before the Sabbath. They're getting ready for the Sabbath. So here it is. They're getting ready. The day of preparation. All these substitutionary images we've already mentioned. Jesus in our place as the Passover lamb. The struck rock. The debt redeeming ransom. As Tim Keller puts it, we cannot put love and sacrifice in opposition to one another. Because all love is a substitutionary sacrifice. In verse 30, he bows his head and gives up his spirit. It's important for us to know that and remember that. No one took his life from him. Jesus didn't die of a broken heart, like some may claim. Jesus gave his life. He gave it willingly for you and I. So these final moments, as we wrap this up, these final moments are crucial for us to get in verse 31 to 37. First, we have the breaking of the bones in verse 31 to 33. Even in these moments when the religious leaders had already broken a lot of the commandments and rules and regulations that were put on them by the law, they'd already broken a bunch of them, but here they're really concerned. All of a sudden they become religious again. And they're like, we got to get these bodies down on the cross because it's about to be the Sabbath and we can't have bodies uh, up here on the cross, dead bodies. So here they do. They call these soldiers to break the legs of the prisoners or the the thieves. So here they go up to one prisoner, break his legs so he couldn't push up anymore to catch a breath. You break his legs, no more pushing, he dies. Goes to the second prisoner, breaks his legs, he dies. But in scripture we see Jesus had already given up his spirit. And so they didn't break his legs again to fulfill scripture. That prophecy was given almost a thousand years ago before that happened. And here it is coming true. Breaking of the bones was a final blow to end someone's life, but Jesus willingly gave up his life. And then the second thing is the piercing of the side. Verse 34 to 37. John devoted four verses to this, most likely helping his readers to understand that he was certainly dead. It was not a trick. John was an eyewitness to the blood and water flowing from Jesus' side. So in order to make sure he was dead, they took the spear and shoved it into his side. And when they shoved it into his side, blood and water poured out. There's a doctor that's done some research on this named Stuart Bergsma. He speaks with some authority that's most likely that Jesus' heart ruptured, hence blood and water flowing. It's important for us to notice this, and I didn't really notice this until studying this a little bit further, the flowing water, the idea of the flowing water out of Jesus' side. And it brings us again back to the Old Testament. If you remember the story of Moses when he was leading the people, and one of the many times when he was leading the people and they're complaining over and over and over again, right? We call them out, but we do the same thing. Here's the people complaining, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, I'm going to die of thirst. I've heard that before. I've said it before. I'm going to die of thirst. And here he is, God, he says, all right, Moses, I'm going to help you with these people again. I want you to speak to this rock. You speak to this rock, water is going to come out, and they will know that I am God. So what does Moses do? He does what every single person in this room would have done 
being frustrated and upset at these people who won't stop whining. He takes the rod and he smashes it against the rock. But God is still kind to him and allows the water to flow out. That water satisfied their thirst that day, right? At least temporarily. It satisfied the thirst they had. But for us, when we look at the rock, the Savior, he was struck. He was pierced. And what flowed out of him was water, was blood, but it wasn't temporary. It wasn't just physical. It wasn't just what the woman at the well was talking about and Jesus was talking to her about something different. It was living water that brings life, that brings hope, that brings joy. The living water and the blood that flowed from Jesus' body. So we see his side pierced and his bones not broken. The water that flowed from our Savior's side was a sign of the eternal quenching of our spiritual thirst. Instead of Moses' rod, a symbol of judgment and authority, striking the Israelites for their disobedience, it came down on that rock, which thus produced water. In the same way, God's judgment against sin struck Jesus rather than us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up, and uh, they're about to lead us in a closing song. But I want you to listen to this final quote, and I think it's on the screen from Charles Spurgeon that sums this up pretty well. It says, Stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorn crown, mark his scourged shoulders, still gushing the encrimsoned rills. See hands and feet given up to the rough iron and his whole self to mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pangs and the throes of inward grief showing themselves in his outward frame. Hear the thrilling shriek, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. If you are not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. Today, I want you to consider that. As we've looked at the cross, I want you to consider the pain that was endured for you, not just the physical, but most importantly, the spiritual rejection of the Father, and consider the fact that that happened to you as well, that instead of you being rejected, you have been saved by the blood of Jesus. And I want you to dwell and meditate on that as we sing this song together. And go ahead and stand together this morning. And I want you to consider the cross of Christ. I want this time this morning as we wrap it up to be a time of prayer and confession. Maybe somebody in this room that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, they can come. You can come to know him today by trusting him and looking at him as the only payment for your sin and the offer of new life. We're going to open up this front just like last week for those that would love to come and pray. Please come and pray and talk to Jesus this morning. Confess and maybe get things right with him this morning. And come to him and think about these words that we're going to sing together. I'll be down front and would love to pray with you.